Good. Welcome. Good morning to you. You doing well today? Of course you are. Can we give it up for the band? What a great job they did today leading us. Really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Well, it's great to see you today. We've uh, got a lot going on on the plate today, both this morning's services and you heard about this afternoon, and just excited to get to be here with you today. Um, if you have notes, they're in your worship folder today. You can get those out. If you have a book Bible, electronic Bible, if you can find your way to Ephesians chapter 1, I know that might be a little bit like, when are we moving out of Ephesians 1? We'll get there today, kind of wrapping up this first part. I want to take a minute, by the way, and just thank you. My family has kind of, in, with intentionality, kind of slowly gone through your letters and your cards. And I just want to say thank you very much. We feel loved on so many fronts, but you were doing that even before we got here, but we've kind of taken time at the dinner table to go around and read them so we're all hearing and getting to know names and faces and whatnot. So just want to say thank you very much. We feel loved so much that way. We were having a little bit of, um, uh, what would you call it, just transitions that come when moving. Uh, this week, we were coming out, the garage door rolls up on Friday morning, and I was taking Kendi to school, and she looked out and she goes, what is that? And if you remember, Friday morning was foggy. Desert people have no idea of what fog is. So it's a pretty great moment. I thought, hmm, okay, this is good. We're, uh, we're getting this all figured out. Well, you're here today in a series that we call This is a Football, and we're taking this idea of going back to the basics of the fundamentals so that we can get on the same page together with God's objectives for his church. And it is God's objectives, and it is his church. So that's why we want to pay attention and hear what the Bible has to say. So we're going through the book of Ephesians to rewind. This is week three in this series. The first week, we were all about introductions. Paul is telling us he is the author of this letter to the church at Ephesus. They're the intended audience. And he's telling us about this triune God. He begins with that idea, talking about the Father, talking about his Son. And then last week, we learned a little bit about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives And so as we're kind of walking through some beginning material, that was week one. Week two last week, we saw some incredibly rich language talking about how God has loved you. What did it mean? What does it mean when God says, I love you, to ransom former slaves, to be his own in his own family, and to live as his heirs? That's the the stuff of what we were looking at last week. And it's this incredible one long complex run-on sentence where Paul, I think, just couldn't stop the pen or couldn't stop uh, dictating these words until finally gets to this crescendo that he's been given the Holy Spirit guaranteeing what is to come. So that's where we we pick up today. We're in Ephesians chapter one, and we're gonna wrap up this first chapter today looking at some very interesting uh, language. In Scripture, we find multiple times when people are praying and they record their prayers. So that's what we're doing today. And and as you think about it, it's going to be a very vulnerable thing for Paul to do, for him to share with the Ephesians, not just I'm praying for you. That's kind of how we do it. We might send a note or, or send a text, hey, praying for you today, which is great. And it gives that person great encouragement, know that you're talking to God on their behalf. But, but Paul doesn't just say, I'm praying for you. He tells them how he's praying for them and gives them great insight into the kinds of things he's concerned on their behalf for, how he's petitioning the Father for, for them. And so we get a peek into that today, and the goal of what today is, is to help us say, maybe this is how we ought to pray. 
A lot of times I feel like that's a frustration internally for us is we would pray more if we didn't feel like we knew, if we felt like we knew more what to pray for, pray about. So almost in that sense of confusion or I don't even know how to pray, today's a help with that because it's gonna give us some handles to know how better to pray for the people that are in your world. And so I'm excited to dive in with you today as we get to get going. Now, in this, uh, in this process, what we, we talked about a series that's very fundamental, right? So I don't even want to assume that when I say the word pray or prayer, that we're all meaning the same thing. So here's the football. In your notes, prayer is communication with God. That's the working definition I want us to use both today and here forward in our series. Prayer is communication with God. Now, you might say, Todd, that's very simplistic. And I would agree. It's a simple definition Number one, you'll find I'm interested in simple. For far too long in my life, I complicated things. So simplicity is good. Secondly, though, of all the reading that I did, it was fascinating how many, and these were from biblical sources, meaning not Webster's Dictionary, but reading commentaries and reading different theological dictionaries. It's amazing how we keep coming back to this idea. When you boil it all down, that's what prayer is. And the funny thing is, at times, we've made it so complicated Prayer has to be some oration. I don't know, and if you pray this way, please don't be offended, but whenever you're near someone who prays as though they're giving a speech, it's very awkward to me because I'm thinking in my head, God just wants you to talk to him. Just tell him what you feel. Tell him what's on your mind. Communicate with him rather than, and I've prayed with people in the past where they get the King James Version going on, you know, and I'm just going, man, this is awesome, and Shakespeare would be proud, okay? So, So within that whole thing, this is boiled down. This is, what communic- this is what prayer is, is communication with God. And that's the, the basic understanding that we want to use. Now, by the way, don't think of prayer as something simplistic in the sense that you're getting to communicate with the creator of the universe. That's pretty amazing. And that should do something to you at a soulish level where you go, why would the creator of the universe even listen to me, even care about the things on my heart? Well, the great news is he does. The Bible tells us so. Now, the type of prayer we're talking about today, there's lots of types of prayers. In in the Bible, sometimes we'll pray prayers of praise or we'll do that in in community. Sometimes we'll pray prayers that are of petition and request. Other times we pray prayers that are are a little bit more on the, the oration side. And even we see those biblically. Solomon, when he's dedicating the temple, he is going to pray this amazing prayer that you just want to read and read and read again. And sometimes our prayers are guttural. God, I can't even stand up. I am, lim- I am crawling on the ground right now praying that you would intercede and show up. This is the range of prayers, but this prayer today, the type we're talking about is what we call intercessory prayers or, or prayers of interceding. In, in your notes, the word intercede, the English word, comes from two Latin words meaning to go between, to go or to be between to go or to be between. So an intercessory prayer means this, is that I'm standing between, here is God, and here is this person or these people, and I'm standing between on their behalf to God. Now, you not need extrapolate. That is some big, convoluted, detailed problem. It's simply this. God, these people have a need. I'm going to you on their behalf. So to intercede is to be between, to go between God and someone else on their behalf. Now, think of a few of the the intercessory prayers of Scripture. Remember, it was Abraham pleading with God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the righteous people like like Lot, his nephew, who lived there. 
Moses in a similar situation. The Israelites are so full of rebellion and complaining, God is ready to wipe them all out except for Moses. Now, on the one hand, Moses is glad for that. Okay, good. Thank you, God. Let's start with that. But on the other hand, God, and this is what he says, God, I'm interceding, I'm I'm begging you not to do this, and here's why, for your name's sake. Because of your great name, what would the nations think that their God brought them to the desert and then killed them all? For your name's sake, don't. So he's interceding for the people. David prayed for a child that was on the verge of death, his own, his own child. Elijah prayed for a widow's son who was dead and was raised to life. Individuals, think of it this way. If we consider Jesus to be who the Bible teaches him to be, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, here's the interesting thing. Anytime in Jesus's earthly ministry, anytime that someone came up to him and said, Jesus, would you please heal? Jesus, would you please do this? Jesus, would you release these demons from this person? They were interceding because they were talking to God on someone else's behalf. It's kind of a wild thing to think about. But if Jesus, like we would believe, is truly God, that's what they were doing, and they didn't have to have the removal of of, of distance between them and God. They were looking him in the face. Jesus prayed for his disciples. He interceded for them on the night that he was betrayed and was going to the cross. And here's the great thing. Romans chapter 8 tells us that even now, even today, not yesterday, not next week, right now, Jesus is interceding on our behalf to the Father. That's a cool thing to stop and think about. So these are all examples of intercessory prayers in the Bible of going between, standing between God and someone else. Now my hunch is this. My hunch is that for those of us when we think about our prayer lives, that typically the time we pray for other people is in crisis. We pray for the things they're going through, the things they're struggling with, and good that we do. Don't get me wrong. That's that's a great time to go before the Father for them. But What we're going to see from Paul today is that the Ephesians and the prayer he prays for them wasn't specifically about any crisis or tragedy they were walking through. He simply prays that they would know better whose they are. And I got to tell you, as I was processing this message, thinking about my own prayer life and the way I pray for people in my world, it's often at the moment of crisis. It's often when things are going poorly, that's when I pray. And again, good thing But how often do I kind of raise my gaze a little bit and simply pray that they would know better whose they are? And that's what Paul's going to remind us of today. And and by the way, as we get into that, even though I'm standing on an elevated stage, please don't for a moment think I've got this wired. This was incredibly convicting to me this week as I was walking through this sequence of how little I pray this kind of prayer for other people and how much more I need to and I want to. So I'm excited to give you some talking points. Here's an interesting thing. For many of you who signed a covenant with us a few weeks ago, if you remember the very last thing on this covenant, pray, pray for the people and the mission of Trinity Church that we would be pleasing to Jesus, our audience of one. So that's even something that you and I have committed to, that we would be a people of prayer and hopefully even more so in these types of dynamics. So questions as we enter into this subject today. Number one, Are you making it a habit? Are you making it your routine? Are you making it your practice to pray for other people? Secondly, what are the kinds of things you pray for those people about? The church at Ephesus had to be encouraged as they were reading these words that you'll get to read today of this is how Paul was thinking of us. So look in your notes. Number one today, pray that the Spirit of God 
would help your teammates know their father better. Remember, we're using this analogy of being on this team together, being coached by the Apostle Paul. Pray that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, would help your teammates know their father better. This is how we begin. We're in chapter 1, verse 15 today. For this reason, ever since I, Paul, heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What does he pray? I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Look at the first phrase, for this reason. That's really an allusion to everything we talked about last week, this idea of being redeemed as former slaves to sin, now brought into the family of God and sealed by his spirit. For all of that concept, Paul says, for that reason, now I talk to God on your behalf, this God that you have faith in and his people that you love. Because of this reality, Paul says, that begins my prayer. Paul could have been motivated to pray for the Ephesians for a host of reasons. For instance, to the Colossians. Colossians 1 also begins with a very beautiful prayer, but it's written more in the sense of the different challenges and persecutions that they're facing. So it's out of that he prays for them. He could have prayed for the Corinthians like he does who are completely confused and living contrary to God in so many ways. Basically, I pray you get it right, that you get your attention right because you're not living God's way. But he doesn't pray for the Ephesians on either of those issues. The occasion for his prayer is simply their faith and their love. Remember how much he loves this church. He loves this group of people and is so excited to bring them to the throne, not necessarily out of crisis or out of confusion, but out of a sense of just gratitude. I love you and I want to pray on your behalf. Now, he prays that the work of the Holy Spirit would be among them, providing wisdom and revelation. Those are these two qualities. But here's the question, for what purpose? Why do they need the Holy Spirit's wisdom and revelation in their life? And look at this, this, this purpose statement. You're going to find, as you get to know me, I am driven by, I love to know why. I want to know the purpose of why we do things. And look at this phrase in that verse we read, I think it's verse 18, so that you may know him better. So that, I, God, would your spirit of wisdom and revelation impact this group of people, why? For the purpose of them knowing you better. Man, I, I love these statements. We find them all throughout scripture. Phrases like because. Phrases like in order that. Phrases like so that you may. Every time you read that, you can hone in on God is telling you why. Now, here's the funny thing. I don't remember as a kid growing up and being that kid, right? Why, dad? Why, mom? I don't remember always questioning. Now, my parents may tell you different. Okay, that's fair. But I don't remember having that drive, but I will tell you, as an adult, I do. I am driven by this concept. I want to understand the purpose of things, and it helps me for this reason. Once I understand the why, the purpose behind something, then I can walk according to it. Then I can make good, purposeful decisions like yes to this and no to that because it doesn't fit the purpose. So biblically speaking, we're going to find so many of these great purposeful statements. The reason why to have the spirit of revelation and wisdom is so that you may know him better. 
in this case, what Paul is asking the Father for, that they would know him better. Think of the full circle that creates. He's praying that the Holy Spirit, one of the members of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, would create a process of, of wisdom and revelation so that they would know the Father, the first member of the Trinity, even better. So God, Paul is asking, as it were, two members of this triune Godhead, as it were, to ultimately bring about this idea. Notice that what he's praying for is not that they would have better theology in the sense of creedal statements or doctrine. Nothing wrong with creedal statements. Nothing wrong with doctrine. Look at the last song we sang. Great words about what we believe. But here, Paul is saying, I simply want you to know him. To know him better. The Greek word that we translate in our English Bible here, the word know, it means to recognize or to have full discernment of. What a great prayer to pray. God, I pray that they would recognize, that they can see you, see you from afar, and have full discernment of who you are. Paul is asking the Father to ultimately provide this for these people. And when you think about what an awesome way to pray for others, God, I pray that this person, I pray that these people would simply be able to discern you, to see you from afar, and then recognize who you are. That's a great way to start. Number two in your notes, pray that your teammates appreciate that they've been chosen by their father. Pray that your teammates appreciate that they've been chosen by their father. What do we mean by that? Next verse in our sequence, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That word means what it sounds like, may, may give light to something may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you. Pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened that you might know the hope to which he's called you. That word picture is something when you think about it, if you take it very literally, it's very odd. Your organ pumping blood through your body right now most likely does not have physical eyes. If it does, talk to me. We have a problem. Okay? So, so how is it that the eyes of your heart would be able to see anything? What, what is this figurative language we're talking about? Well, Paul's using this sequence because what he understood and what he was writing from in the first century, we even see this back in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible as well, is that the heart represented the moral, the ethical, the intellectual, the spiritual, the emotional seat of a person. That was the essence of who you are related to your heart. Now today, we think of our heart a little bit more through the lens of our emotions. Like we get that piece of it. Your heart, you know, I, I've given my heart away to him. Or, you know, my heart resonates for. So it's a lot of passion or emotion, which was part of the idea. But in the first century, it really meant the totality, kind of who this person was related to their heart. So Paul says, at a heart level, the seat of who you are, I want you to know this reality. Now, it's fascinating. He uses a bit of a play on words. So the eyes of your heart might know. Well, the word know in the original Greek literally means to see with physical eyes. So he's saying back over here, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be able to see with physical eyes. And they're like, we're really confused. Think of it this way. You often will use this kind of phrase when someone's talking to you, you'll say, I see what you mean. Now, you don't physically see words coming out of their mouth, but the point is a vision helps clarify and helps you realize, now I get it. So that's the idea of what Paul's saying. I pray that you would be able to see, that you would have the sense of knowledge because you come in contact. And I love the phrase that what was dim would be made light, to be enlightened. Now, what is it that he's asking them to grow in, to be aware of the hope to which he's called you? 
Now, I was doing a lot of study this week, and commentators are kind of all over the map on what that might mean, but to me, it kind of breaks down this way. Biblically speaking, whenever we see the word calling, you've been called to something, it usually talks about the initial part of a relationship. When you've been called into the family of God means that when you became a member, when you joined, as it were. So I think what Paul's unpacking is, this is what I pray for. I pray that you would have an appreciation and a gratitude for how you've been adopted, brought into this family in the first place, the calling that you've received. And that's all about, again, what we talked about last week, about this incredible reality of how God has loved us. Paul's kind of circling back to that idea and saying, I hope that's something you never lose. I hope that's an appreciation you never become complacent in that you've been brought into the family of God. It's interesting how for many of us last week, walking through that passage, on the one hand, for some it was relatively new information, but for many, it was simply a reminder of the things you had known before, but what maybe failed to keep appreciating. It was convicting to me last week on that reality. Paul says, my prayer is that you don't forget to be appreciative of this great calling that you have on your life and how you've been brought into, called into the family of God. This is the thing he prays for them. Number three in your notes, pray that your teammates would eagerly anticipate their father's inheritance. Pray that your teammates would eagerly anticipate their father's inheritance. The next phrase, and what we're going to find in the Greek language, all three of these last phrases today are all connected. So they start with, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be open, would be lit, so that you could know. The first one was the hope of the calling. Second one, verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. That you might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So the prayer is that, that would you get it? Would you understand that there is something great worth looking forward to. And here's the point. The whole problem with this whole idea is that you have to wait. We absolutely hate to wait. Am I right? Okay. You get frustrated when you have to wait in a line. You get frustrated when there's traffic. You get frustrated that your internet speed is not a blip but instead takes two whole seconds to load your page, you know? Super, your microwave could never work fast enough. All these kinds of problems. And we absolutely hate to wait. It is such a problematic thing for us. And I get it. I'm that kind of person like, like you. You're at Target and you are looking always for the shortest line, right? Now, some of you, you go, I'm looking for the lady who looks the sweetest because I really want to have a conversation. I hate standing in line behind you. <laughs> I am not looking for a conversation. I want to say hi. Yes, I'm having a great day. And here's my ATM card. Okay? So, so some of you are looking, but most of us are like that. You're looking for where's the short line because why? If I get in the long one, I have to wait. When my family, when my kids are with me at Target, I, they will say, Dad, which line? And I'll pick. And they go, now, anyone but that one. Because I have this knack for always picking lines where they're like, oh, I've got to turn on my light. Something's gone bad. You know, and oh, we're gonna, we are going to have a conversation. Tell me about your grandkids. You know, we're going to do all this. I'm like, ah, you don't like to wait. Neither do I. And it's, it's become something relatively epidemic for us. And the interesting question is to pull back just a little bit and ask the question, why? Why do I hate to wait so badly? 
And the interesting thing, if you stop and look in the mirror a little bit on that question, I think you're going to find some very interesting answers. One reason that I hate to wait, it's that it's not allowing me to do more things. Because if I really was living in a way that life had more margin, I would actually have time to wait in this line. I would have time to wait in traffic. I'd have time for the two seconds for my internet speed to load. But because my life is so jam-packed full, and I've arranged my day that I have literally milliseconds from one thing to the next, I can't afford to be late to anything. You ever had a day like that where one appointment or one thing starts about 10 minutes late and you seem to never catch up all day long? I hate that. It happens to me often. I just go, oh, Todd, you've overbooked again. Another reason why you hate to wait is because it gives you pause and you don't know what to do with empty space. In the moment of push and move, you can almost thoughtlessly go through life. But when you have to wait, now all of a sudden there's a little bit of emptiness until you get out your smartphone and play words with friends. Or check your messages, or go online and shop, or whatever. Here's my point. Maybe what we've done is we've created an environment that we so badly hate to wait that we've pushed aside if there could be any at all possible redeeming value of waiting. Because I'm going to tell you, I know. I know there is redemptive value in waiting. And how do I know that? Why would I know that? if only for this idea. Paul prays that the Ephesian believers would know, would have enlightenment, would have the thing, it would no longer be dim because of the fact that they would would lean into the idea that they have an inheritance awaiting them in heaven. It's not here right yet. Theologians use a great term, now but not yet. When we talked last week and you were the slave up on the box whose lock has been popped, and you're invited to come home, that all happened. That all happened the moment that you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, but as you are walking home, as it were, with the Father, you are his. There are some realities you have not yet experienced. That's the not yet part, and that's the part we wait for. That's our inheritance, the Holy Spirit as a deposit, reminding us, guaranteeing what is to come. But you have to wait for it. And so do I. And so Paul prays, God, would you help them wait? Would you help them be able to see the value of what's coming and that it's worth it in the in-between time? Now, when I say the word heaven and related to this idea of waiting for something, that's a problematic term in and of itself. Like, we don't have time today to do a message or a series on heaven, but I can't wait to do that. But, But suffice it to say this, That if you're here today, and when I say the word heaven, what conjures to your mind are effeminate characters wearing white with wings, playing harps on puffy clouds. I totally get it why heaven doesn't motivate you, because that seems like anywhere that I don't want to be. God, let heaven be anything but that, please. And, And the problem is this, you and I have developed some sort of inferior understanding of heaven, and so what God had always intended, what God has always intended to be a motivator, to be a reminder, to be a perspective shifter, now is nothing because 
We don't even know what it's about. We don't, we're not at all interested or drawn to it. And now all of a sudden, we just have become very comfortable and focused in the here and now. When you read biographies of people ahead of us, a generation two, three, and five, when you read their biographies and you hear how their focus on heaven got them through the day, you hear about their perspective of what was awaiting them that helped them get through trials and tragedies. When you hear about an inheritance that was stored up for them in heaven and that gave them the ability to keep on keeping on, you realize they had something you and I don't have. But the interesting thing is, it's absolutely available to us. There was nothing different. They didn't have a different Bible than you and I have. They didn't have a different hope that you and I don't have. <clears throat> Excuse me, what they simply had was perspective. The kind that heaven gives you when you recognize what God has awaiting you. Look at the great way that Peter said this. Peter, when he writes his first letter, it's all about the idea of people suffering for their faith. A very interesting theme that I think we in America are beginning to engage more and more. And the interesting thing, by the way, that he talks about is not about who to boycott, not about how to have, um, you know, public, um, uh, you know, protests, none of that. With grace, this is how you endure tough times. And this is how he begins that letter. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into what? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of Jesus, we've been born into something new. What? and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Look at this last line. That inheritance is kept in heaven for you. I love it. Doesn't it say in Romans 5, it doesn't require faith to wait for something you're holding in your hands. Faith is required because it's not here yet, but it's coming. So Paul's praying on the one hand, God these Ephesian believers, would you keep them mindful? Would you keep them appreciative? Keep them grateful for the fact they've been called into your family? And then secondly, God, would you keep them aware, keep them anticipating, keep them sitting at the edge of their chair, can't wait for their inheritance in heaven, the end game. Praise for both the beginning, praise for the end. And we'll finally see today, number four in your notes, he prays for the middle as well. Pray that your teammates would walk in the unmatchable power of their father. Pray that your teammates would walk in the unmatchable power of their father. First part of verse 19, again, praying the eyes of their heart would be enlightened that they would know what? His incomparably great power for us to believe. If the first part of the prayer talked about their calling into the family, the last part or the next part of the prayer talked about the hope of heaven, their guaranteed inheritance to come. Now Paul prays that in the middle of that time, from their calling to their entrance home to be with you, God, I'm praying for them to know your power to walk in it. And I wasn't just winking at all you guys right here. I totally have something in my eye. Because you're going, man, Todd, your eye's all a flutter all of a sudden. It is. He's praying for their power in the middle, that they would be able to keep on keeping on because they know and experience and rely upon the power of God. What an incredibly amazing thing to process. How am I praying for the people in my world? 
Am I praying that they would remember what they've been called to? Are they, am I praying that they would eagerly anticipate what they have to look forward to? And am I praying that they would walk in and know the power of God daily? Here's the interesting thing about the power of God. Is that I think very few of us really know and experience and walk in this power primarily because you don't need it. When I was 16, I got a car and uh, my parents went big and bought me a Chevy Monza. You've never heard of a Chevy Monza? They only made three of them. <laughs> and it wasn't like we only made three because they're so amazing. They made three and stopped. Like, it was a piece of junk. No more. So I had this Chevy Monza. It had a V8 and a little car that looked like the size of a Mustang. So it had way too much power for a 16-year-old. I blew the motor mounts, the whole thing. So I have this car, but the wild thing about it is on my way, I lived about maybe a mile and a half from Ukaipa High, and I drive down D Street to get to the high school, and every time I come out of the dip, my car would stall. I'm 16 years old. I'm incredibly unmechanical. You'll find at 45, I'm incredibly unmechanical. And I I can't get my car to start. This is a daily occurrence in the winter of that 16th year. So I'm getting out and I'm flipping up the hood and I really have no idea what to do. My parents aren't available. I'm not going to walk all the way back now. And I live in this world of complete dependence and mercy that someone with an inclination about motors would stop and help me. I drive a Honda now. It's not a plug for Hondas. I'm just saying it's probably not going to break until I'm done with it. I really like that. Don't get me wrong. Never want to go back to being on the side of the road, but I will tell you the place of dependence that I used to live in versus the one I do now, just as an example of all the areas of my life, just like your life. Why would you need to know the power of God when you've so successfully insulated yourself from need? God's not going to break through unless you recognize how much you need him. And and God has a great way of bringing that back to reality. Because remember, that whole thing's a facade anyways, and you know this. You've had times in your life, seasons where you thought everything was going just great and all of a sudden God hit you between the eyes with some sort of challenge or struggle and you realize I never was in control like I thought I was. And then you recognize once again, God, I need your power. And it's not power to run sometimes, it's simply power to crawl because I can't get through the day. Here's the point. Paul prays, that the Ephesian believers would live in such a place where they are aware of and recognize their need for the power of God. Because that power is available. The power is there just waiting, waiting to be engaged. But as long as we can make life work on our own, as long as we've got everything under control, why would you even ask? Look at the incomparable power that Paul goes on to describe. Verse 19 That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, above all power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. 
And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. (sighs) Breathe. Paul is just going off describing this power that he wants them to know, to recognize, and to walk in. In verse 19 alone, we see multiple ways the power is described. That word power initially is the Greek word we get our English word dynamite from, dunamis. That they would know his power, that they would know his might, that they would know his strength. All three of those words in verse 19 alone. He goes on to describe this power. Pray that they would know that they would experience the kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. Pretty powerful. The same power that established him, that seated him in heaven. The same power that put him in position of above all rule and authority, above all power and dominion. The same power that will continue to hold that place of supremacy and honor, not just now, but for all of eternity to come. The same power that has put everything under his feet. The same power that has established him as head of the body, the church of us, his people, as we represent him and his salvation to the world. I will tell you that is some kind of power. That is what Paul prays that they would know, that they would walk in, that they would call upon. And when you think about that reality of going, God, maybe it's a good thing that I would be in a position where I know I'm not in control. A good thing where I know how desperately I need you. I remember that, that really popular um, worship song from a lifetime ago, you know, um, I'm desperate for you. And I, I would really have to, when I would sing that song, I would really have to pray, God, you need to do something in my life because honestly, I'm very content with you. I'm very glad to be yours, but desperate's all kind of a whole new category. And I want to sing those songs with authenticity and with truth rather than just songs I should sing. So question, do you pray for others when you're interceding for them that they would know and walk in this kind of power, the kind that exerted, that God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead? Now, we've talked about all these kinds of aspects of how to pray for people today. One of the things is this, you might walk away from this and go, but Todd, this is great for the people in my world that I'm interceding for that already know you, that already know God and, and that they would know and grow in that relationship. But what about the people in my world who don't yet know Jesus yet, who, who are on the block? See, remember, God has already come, and he's paid the debt. He's popped the lock. And as they're standing there, the invitation is, come home with me. Nothing else has to be done except for their response. How do I pray this prayer for those people? And I go, this is still a beautiful prayer to pray on their behalf. God, would they have faith in you? God, would they know that you are this and that? So this need not be a prayer even only for those who so far put their faith in Christ, but even for those who haven't yet, this is a prayer, would this be true of them? Your game plan this week, we said we're giving you one every week, and again, I would have loved to have a coach write this well. Pray that your teammates know whose they are. That, this week, would that be our marching orders? Would that be our game plan praying for the people in my world that they would know whose they are. Now, what I did for you today is I prepared for you a prayer of phrase. I came up with that myself. It was pretty good, right? A prayer of phrase. It's at the bottom of your notes. Now, we didn't get all of it in your notes, so here's what you're going to do. 
In a moment, you're going to read this off the screen with me because it's incomplete there, or is, it is complete there. It's incomplete in your notes. But it's also on the website, so you can pull that down and download it this week to use. But it's simply meant to be a tool so that you would be able to actually take the very same thoughts we've said today in a concise way and be able to pray them over someone else. Let me give you an example. I'm going to pray this right now over my wife, Joanna. These are, this is how I would pray it. Since God has adopted Joanna into his family, and because of Joanna's faith in Jesus and love for his people, I give thanks for Joanna regularly. I ask that the Father would give Joanna a growing sense of the Spirit's wisdom and revelation so that Joanna may know him better. I pray that the eyes of Joanna's heart may be opened to be reminded of the hope of Joanna's calling, to anticipate the great inheritance that awaits Joanna, and to walk in the unmatchable power that is available to Joanna as a member of Jesus' body, the church. These are handles. This is a tool for you to walk away from today and go, you don't have to be confused. Is this prayer okay to pray? comes right out of the Bible. You don't have to wonder, God, how do I pray thoughtfully for other people? This is it. It's not the only way, but it's a good way. So here's how we're going to close our service today. I'm going to take a moment to, to pray, but then coming out of that, I want us all to pray. And here's how we're going to do it. Those same words are going to be back up on the screen. I want you to say them aloud with me. Let's say it all together. And when we get to a blank, I want you to have someone's name in mind. And every time we get to that blank, you say their name aloud. Read the whole thing with me, but when we get to a blank, we'll customize it, and there'll be literally as many of us as are in the room, there'll be that many people that we're praying for. Got it? Father God, we come before you today, and we say thank you for being a God who even listens to our prayers, a God that we can talk to, and even on behalf of other people. And for that, we're so grateful for these words from the Apostle Paul to know better, not just how we've been prayed for, but how to pray for others. You may be here today and you recognize, you know, in this whole equation, to be so grateful for being adopted into God's family, I actually haven't made that decision yet. And if you're here today, the great news is, is that you can. Even before you leave, right now in this moment, you can say, God, I recognize that I'm standing on that block. I recognize that you came by and that you paid with your son's life in my place you have popped the locks and now the decision's up to me. I stand there at a crossroads now of what to do. You can admit that you're a sinner, that you've lived life on your terms, not on God's. And when you admit that, you simply admit that you're a part of the human race. You can believe, believe that Jesus, this God-man, came, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day so that he could make right the problem that was wrong because of your sin. And C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, you walk this way with this purpose. I want to walk in your steps and follow you. You can make that decision, that prayer. You can come off the block and go home with your father today. And the Bible says that your life will never be the same and your eternity assured. If you make that decision today, I want to encourage you, tell someone, Tell someone, yes, I made that decision and I, I've entered into God's family and they will be so excited for you. For that, Father, we all recognize gratitude and thankfulness for being in your family. We, it only comes because of what you've done for us. So, Father, we close our time today by praying for the people in our lives 
and we pray these words over them. On the screens, let's say these aloud. Since God has adopted Joanna into his family, and because of Joanna's faith in Jesus and love for his people, I give thanks for Joanna regularly. I ask that the Father would give Joanna a growing sense of the Spirit's wisdom and revelation so that Joanna may know him better. I pray that the eyes of Joanna's heart would be open to be reminded of the hope of Joanna's calling, to anticipate the great inheritance that awaits Joanna, and to walk in the unmatchable power that is available to Joanna as a member of Jesus' body, the church. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.